Section twenty seven of Old and New Masters by Robert Lynn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lady Gregory. It was Mr. Bernard Shaw who, in commenting on the rowdy reception of the Irish players in some American theaters, spoke of Lady Gregory as the greatest living Irishwoman. She is certainly a remarkable enough writer to put a generous critic a little off his balance. Equal mistress in comedy and tragedy, essayist, gatherer of the humors of folklore, imaginative translator of heroic literature, venturesome translator of Moliere, she has contributed a greater variety of grotesque and beautiful things to Anglo-Irish literature than any of her contemporaries. She owes her chief fame, perhaps, to the way in which, along with Mr. G. A. Birmingham and the authors of Some Experiences of an Irish R.M., she has kept alive the tradition of Ireland as a country in which laughter has a frequent occasion to hold both his sides. She surpasses the others in the quality of her comedy, however, not that she is more comic, but that is she is more comprehensively true to life. Mr. Birmingham has given us farce with the salt of reality. Miss Somerville and Miss Ross, practical jokers of literature, turn to reality as upper-class patrons of the comic. But Lady Gregory has gone to the reality as to a cave of treasure. She is one of the discoverers of Ireland. Her genius, like Singe's, opens its eyes one day and saw spread below it the immense sea of Irish common speech, with its color, its laughter, and its music. It is a sort of second birth which many Irish men and women of the last generation or so have experienced. The beggar on the road, the piper at the door, the old people in the workhouse, or henceforth accepted as a sort of aristocracy in exile. Lady Gregory obviously sought out their company as the heirs to a great inheritance, an inheritance of imaginative and humorous speech. Not that she plundered them of their fantastic tropes so greedily as Singe did. She studied rather their common turn of phrase, its height and its hollows, its exquisite illogic, its passionate underflow of poetry. Has she not herself told us how she could not get on with the character of Bartley Fallon in spreading the news, till one day she met a melancholy man by the sea at Duras who, after describing the crosses he endured at home, said, but I'm thinking if I went to America, it's long ago I'd be dead, and it's a great expense for a poor man to be buried in America. Out of sentences like these, sentences seized upon the genius of the notebook. She has made much of what is most delightful in her plays. Her sentences are steeped and died in life, even when her situations are as mad as hatters. Someone has said that every great writer invents a new language lady gregory whom it would be unfair to praise as a great writer has at least qualified as one by inventing a new language out of her knowledge of irish peasant speech this perhaps is her chief literary peril having discovered the beautiful dialect of the kiltartan peasantry she was not content to leave it as a peasant dialect as we find it in her best dramatic work seven short plays but she set about transforming it into a tongue into which all literature and emotion might apparently be translated thus she gave us moliere in kiltartan a ridiculously successful piece of work and she gave us finn and kukulcane in modified kiltartan and this too was successful sometimes very beautifully so here however she had masterpieces to begin with 
in irish folk history plays on the other hand we find her embarking not upon translation but upon original heroic drama in the kiltartan language the result is unreality as unreal as if meredith had made a farm laborer talk like diana of the crossways take for instance the first of the plays grogne which is founded on the story of the pursuit of dearmuth and grogne by finn mccool to whom grogne had been betrothed when finn disguises a blind beggar visits the lovers in their tent grogne who does not recognize him bids him give finn this message from her give heed to what i say now if you have one eye as blind let it be turned to the place where we are and that he might ask news of and if you have one seeing eye cast it upon me and tell finn you saw a woman no way sad or afraid but as airy and high-minded as a mountain filly would be challenging the winds of march i flatly refuse to take the high-minded mountain filly seriously as a tragic heroine and i confess i hold finn equally suspect disguised as a beggar though he is when he speaks of himself to grania as a hard man as hard as a barren stepmother's slap or a highway's gander's gob after all in heroic literature we must have the illusion of the heroic if we can get the peasant statement of the heroic that is excellent its sincerity brings its illusion but a mere imitation of the peasant statement of the heroic such as lady gregory seems to aim at giving us in these sentences is as pinchbeck and unreal as macpherson's ocean it reaches a grotesque absurdity when at the close of act two finn comes back to the door of the tent and in order to stir up dearmuth's jealousy says it is what they were saying a while ago the king of foreign is grunting and sighing grunting and sighing around and about the big red sally tree beside the stream to write like that is to use not a style but a jargon if you want a standard of reality with which to compare these passages of abbey theatre rhetoric you have only to turn to lady gregory's own notes at the end of irish folk history plays where she records a number of peasant utterances on irish history here and not in the plays in the tragic plays at any rate is the real folk history of her book to be found one may take as an example the note on kinkora which some one tells of the battle of clontarf in which brian boru defeats the danes clontarf which on the head of a game of chess the generals of the danes were beaten at it and they were vexed it was broder that the brodericks are descended from that put a dagger through brian's heart and he attended to his prayers what the Danes left in Ireland were hens and weasels, and when the cock crows in the morning the country people will always say, it is for Denmark they are crowing, crowing they are to be back in Denmark. Lady Gregory reveals more of life, leaping imaginative life, in that little note than in all the three acts about Gronya and the three about Brian. It is because the characters in the comic plays in the book are nearer the peasantry in stature and in outlook that she is so much more successful with them than with the heroes and heroines of the tragedies. She describes the former plays as tragic comedies, but in the first and best of them, the Canavans, it is difficult to see where the tragedy comes in. The Canavans is really a farce of the days of Elizabeth. The principal character is a cowardly miller who ensues nothing but his own safety in the war of loyalties and disloyalties which is destroying Ireland. He is equally afraid of the wrath of the neighbors on the one hand and the wrath of the government on the other. Consequently, he is at his wit's end when his brother Antony comes seeking shelter in his house after deserting from the English army. 
when the soldiers come looking for antony so helpless with terror is the miller that he flies into hiding among his sacks and his brother has to impersonate him in the interview with the officer who carries out the search the situation obviously lends itself to comic elaborations and lady gregory misses none of her opportunities she flies off from every semblance of reality at a tangent however in a later scene where antony disguises himself as queen elizabeth supposed to have come on a secret visit of inspection to ireland and takes in both his brother and the officer who is himself a canavan anglicized under the name of headley this is a sheer invention of the theatre it turns a play from living speech into machinery the canavans however has enough of present-day reality to make us forgive its occasional stage elizabethanism on the whole its humours gain nothing from their historical setting the white cockade the second of the tragic comedies is a play about the flight of king james the second after the battle of the boyne and it too is lifeless and mechanical in so far as it is historical king james himself is a good comic figure of a conventional sort as he is discovered hiding in the barrel but sarsfield who is meant to be heroic is all joints and sawdust and the mad jacobite lady is a puppet who might have been invented by any writer of plays when my white cockade was produced lady gregory tells us i was pleased to hear that mr singe had said my method had made the writing of a historical drama again possible but surely granted the possession of the dramatic gift the historical imagination is the only thing that makes the writing of historical drama possible lady gregory does not seem to me to possess the historical imagination not that i believe in archaeology in the theatre but apart from her peasant characters she cannot give us the illusion of reality about the figures in these historical plays if we want the illusion of reality we shall have to turn from the white cockade to the impossible scene outside the post office and the butcher's shop in hyacinth halvey as for the third of the tragic comedies the deliverer it is a most interesting curiosity in it we have an allegory of the fate of parnell in a setting of the egypt of the time of moses moses himself or the king's nursling as he is called is parnell and he and the other characters talk kiltartan as to the manner born the deliverer is grotesque and in its way impressive though the conclusion in which the king's nursling is thrown to the king's cats by his rebellious followers invites parody the second volume of the irish folk history plays even if it reveals only lady gregory's talent rather than her genius is full of odd and entertaining things and the notes at the end of both of these volumes short though they are do give us a franchise of a wonderful world of folk history end of section twenty seven read by ginger kukolo